Look at your bulletin outline. That is the first point. And it begins with, and we already saw that in chapter 29, it begins with children. You have to think Oriental culture when you read texts like this. In our day, I remember when I was growing up, Planned Parenthood, which uh, Lord, uh, Lord knows they are against children. They want to have abortion commonplace and so on. But they put out this thing uh, when I was growing up as a kid, and I remember my folks talking about that the ideal family in America should have no more than 2.5 children. How you get the .5, I don't know, but that's the push that they put on uh, America. And why were they saying that? Because Margaret Sanger and her group were pushing the idea that the world population was too much, that we uh, have to weed it out, that we can't have so many babies because we can't afford to feed these babies and bring them, so on. And then the Right to Life movement was born and it started to fight back and said, you know, you can fit all the population of the entire world into the state of Texas and give them a two-foot square area to stand, all of the population of the world would fit into Texas. And so the fight began. But in Oriental societies, having large families was a plus. Remember, they're, they're, there's no armies here to protect them. They had their own sheep. They had their own uh, grazing land and so forth. Uh, a lot of fight in there about wells. We've been looking at that in Abraham's life. So you had to defend yourself. So having, remember Abraham had 361 servants born in his own house. How'd you like to feed them every day? But having a large family was essential. And it was a place of honor. So we see the first point in our outline that many children increased Jacob's family. We didn't read this, but the first 22 verses of Genesis 30 deal with the continual rivalry between Leah and Rachel. Initially, Rachel was barren. She complains to Jacob, verse 1, Give me children or I'll die. But he was quick to scold her, saying, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? The translation is something like this. Why are you blaming me for something only God can do and has done? Well, Rachel married off Bilhah, her maidservant, saying... Verse 3, she can bear children for me. Through her, I too can build a family. Remember that Sarah did the same thing with her maidservant Hagar, whom she married off to Abram because she wasn't having any children. But that giving of the, the maidservant to, to the master of the house didn't work out too good for Sarah. And hasn't worked out too good uh, for the nations, the Ishmaelites, the Arabs of our day are all as a result of Hagar giving birth. And they have been a thorn in Israel's side ever since. But God must have wanted it that way or it wouldn't have happened. Bilhah bore Jacob two sons, Dan, which means vindicated, and Naphtali, which means struggle. Not to be undone, when Leah stopped conceiving, she married off Zilpah, that's her maid, to Jacob, who bore him Gad, which means good fortune, Asher, meaning happy, verse 13, Issachar, verse 18, meaning reward, Zebulun, verse 20, honor. So that's six sons all total for Leah personally, and then one daughter, verse 21, named Dinah. 
Rachel then conceived. Wow, the Lord opens her womb and she conceives and had Joseph, which means God added. That's what his name means. And that was her prayer request. Look at verse 24. May the Lord add to me another son. So she anticipates she got one son from the Lord. Maybe the Lord will give me uh, another son. So if you're keeping count, through Leah, Rachel, and their maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah, Jacob's family has grown to 11 sons and one daughter. Leah remarks in verse 20, I have borne him six sons. That's a reference to her own birthing that took place, not the maids. So that's uh, six sons. But you have to add those two sons born through the maid Zilpah. And so that makes eight for Leah, three for Rachel, Dan, Naphtali, Joseph. One more to come for Rachel. And that'll be the son Benjamin. And that will give you your 12 tribes of Israel. If we use normal gestation period for these pregnancies of nine months each, and in the birth of, add in the birth of Dinah, the daughter, and maybe a month or two between conceptions, we may surmise that the years have just been ticking away here for him. Probably 10, 12 years, resulting eventually in 20 years when Jacob breaks away from Laban to head home Again, chapter 31, verse 38. But that's yet in the future, but it's coming. So I think it would be fair assessment of Jacob to say that he is slowing down on being the willier dealer that he once was. He has settled down in Laban's household. He has sired many sons and one daughter. And he has kind of made a home for his own family. But in Jacob's case, God has blessed him so with a large family. So it's like a family living within a family. But how, if it's a large family, and it is, how is he to support such a family as a tenement farmer? He didn't own the homestead. The homestead belonged to Laban. So how's he going to do this? When does he get a chance to break loose and have his own homestead? Well... That's the next point in your outline. Financial prosperity begins to come to Jacob, and here's how it happened. He tried to break ties with Laban and return home. Verse 25. The years have come, the years have gone, and Jacob didn't have much to account for all those years of service that he had given to Laban. So he just wanted, and I can see this as a man, he just wanted to take his wives and his children and, and be on his way. It's like, you know, moving away from home, uh, moving away from dad and mom. Only he's, it's not dad and mom. It's Laban, his uncle, that, where he's at. But he wants to have his own place. He wants to have his own homestead. Laban, however, was reluctant to let him go. Why? Verse 27. He says, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will pay them. What is Laban saying? He is saying something like this to Jacob. That Jacob has been like um, an amulet, like a, a, a lucky charm that has resulted in blessings coming to Laban. So he didn't want the golden goose that lays the golden egg to go away. I want you to stay right here. Just name, name your wages and I'll, and I'll pay it. 
This word divination is a Hebrew word, means to consult with spirits, to read omens, to interpret signs, to discern what happened in the past or what will happen in the future. And all of this was strictly forbidden to God's people. We read in Deuteronomy 18, verse 10, Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fires, which, of course, the pagans did, who practice divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does any of these things is detestable to the Lord. This is all occult practice, you know. And by the way, why, why would persons go to the occult? It's because the demons know things. They know things. They're not omniscient like God. It's not that kind of knowledge. But they know from observation. They know from seeing and observing. So they, and they also know the evil that they plan to do. God not, if God doesn't uh, obstruct their plans. So they can say things about the future and they can observe things that are going on in the world and so on. And so people go to the occult. Now this remark tells us that all of this lingo about God blessing Laban, all this God talk must be taken cautiously. Because Laban, as we shall discover, worshipped idols he says in chapter 31, verse 30, he calls them my gods. And he blames Jacob for stealing his gods when he finally does get to go home and take his uh, family back to uh, Canaan. In our text, Jacob knows, verse 30, the little you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. We read that and it sounds to us like Jacob understands uh, of God and his blessings to Laban through Jacob's hard work. But again, we have to issue a caution. Jacob is using the same kind of spiritual jargon used in Padam Aran to fortify his own scheme to negotiate his wages. He's saying something like this. You're very correct, uncle. In, in concluding that the Lord has blessed you because of me, so here's my proposal for my wages. Verse 32, I'll sift through all, our, all your flocks, and any and every spotted, speckled, or dark lamb or goat will become my wages. The remaining white sheep or goats will remain yours. Laban agreed. So it looks like they got a great agreement here. Jacob's going to stick around. Take care of Laban's sheep for a while, and he's going to be able to finally get some wages for his large family and build his own inheritance. But observe what crafty Laban did. Verse 38 and following. That same day, he, that's Laban, removed all the male goats that were streaked, spotted, and all the speckled or spotted female goats all that had white on them, and all the dark-colored lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons, that's Laban's sons. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob, while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks. What's going on here? Laban, well, he's fast trying to cheat Jacob of the agreed-upon wages. Oh, yeah, okay, you can have all the speckled and spotted sheep and the black ones and so forth. And how he pulled this off without Jacob knowing it, I don't know. But that's what the scripture says. 
when Jacob wasn't aware of things going on, Laban comes in with his sons and he, they scarf out all of those speckled, spotted, dark sheep that were supposed to be the wages for Jacob. And he takes them a three-day journey away where Jacob will have no, no idea. Well, what happened to all those? So what did Jacob do? Verse 37 and following. Jacob took a number of branches, poplar, almond, plane trees, and he stripped some of the bark, revealing the white inner wood, verse 37, that is, he made the branches appear to be spotted and speckled by this little bit of artistry that he's doing. And then he placed these near the water troughs with the result that the sheep and goats that made it were producing lambs or kids, as the, if they're sheep or goats, who were born spotted or speckled. Ah, voila, there's my wages. Look what's going on. What is more, the scripture says here that he did this only when the strong animals were ready for mating, verse 41. The result being that those ewes that gave birth to spotted and streaked offspring, which were his wages, but when the weaker animals were ready to mate, Jacob put the branches away and they just had offspring that were of inferior quality. Verse 20, 42 says, but if the animals were weak, he would not place them, the branches, there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. And in this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and maidservants and men servants and camels and donkeys. In other words, all the things that money can buy because he is being very prosperous, prosperous as a shepherd. Now, you read something like this you got to scratch your head and wonder what's going on. This voodoo magic approach to mating animals, tree branches with spark stripped off of them to give them spotted or sparked look, has no scientific substance to it whatsoever for explaining why the sheep and the goats that mated in front of these branches were responsible for the lambs and the kids being born speckled or spotted. The only real explanation for this is that God himself was fulfilling his promise to Jacob made back in chapter 28, verse 15. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The patriarch, Job, was humbled by God when God revealed to Job just how little he knew about life and living in the animal kingdom. And here's what he told to Job. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Implied answer, no you don't. Do you know, do, do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave. They do not return. Or who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied his ropes? I gave him the wasteland as his home, the salt flats as his habitat. He laughs at the commotion in the town. He does not hear a driver's shout. He ranges the hills for his pasture. He searches for any green thing. 
Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will he stay by your manger at night? Can you hold him to the furrow with a harness? Will he till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on him for his great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to him? Can you trust him to bring in your grain and gather in your threshing floor? Job 39, verse 1 and following. So God is saying to Job, you know, there's a whole animal kingdom out there. And I'm the one that takes care of them and orchestrates how they function and so forth. Not you. Now we know that man has learned how to domesticate wild animals, but that's not God's point to Job. God's point is that it is God Almighty as creator who governs the mating, the birthing, the sustenance, the maturing of the animals, as is proved by those wild creatures who do, do not just find, uh, we do not just find without man's husbandry efforts. They're out there on their own. They're making it on their, we would say on their own. But God is saying, no, it's not quite on their own. I'm there and I'm caring for them. Now to point then, Jacob's sheep and goat offspring were not born speckled and spotted because he displayed branches with striped bark before them in their mating season. God was simply paying Jacob his agreed upon wages which Laban, his uncle, conspired to steal from him by conscripting those speckled and spotted creatures and removing them to a secret hideout three days' journey away. Away from Laban's livestock and away from also Jacob's watchful eye. I want you to think about this. Those speckled, spotted sheep, goats, dark-colored and so on, they possessed what? They possessed the genetic code to reproduce offspring which would be disposed to the same kind of unusual markings, right? So Laban reasoned, you know, I'll just remove those adult ewes, leaving only the white woolies for Jacob to tend to, verse 36. They will produce only white offspring. Jacob will not be the wise. But God was the wiser. And God saw to it that these white sheep and goats gave birth to spotted, speckled, and dark-colored offspring. And what is even more relevant for its spiritual value is the reality that Jacob, at this point in his life, actually believed that his superstitious ploy of breeding livestock in front of striped tree branches would result in striped offspring. He was acting on voodoo occult methodology with no thoughts of God's grace and sovereignty in these matters. The wheeler-dealer has not stopped wheeling and dealing. And yet, and yet, by God's grace, he continued to live by his wits and God still blessed him despite his ignorance and despite his superstition. And we don't, do we not see this among people of the world at times? That God blesses them abundantly despite the sinfulness of their hearts. And they walk around like this, like peacocks, you know, like Nebuchadnezzar looking over Babylon. Is this not great Babylon which I have built? 
They look over their life and they see their successes and they say, I'm a self-made man and how ignorant they are. That God can take it away in a snap and that God himself has given that to them by giving them good brains, good bodies, sound minds, business savvy, whatever it took for them to make their money, to make their millions, God blessed them that way, but they do not acknowledge him. Well, this is a hard family to live in, isn't it? I mean, you got Laban, who is, boy, he's just taken advantage of Jacob. Cheated him out of his first love of his life, which was Rachel. He had to work 14 years then to finally uh, obtain her. And then now that the wages are set to be animals of a certain color and so forth, he scarfs them all away, moves them many miles away so Jacob doesn't know where they are or what it's about. This is not the activity of a godly man. And neither is Jacob's actions with regard to try and get animals to bear spotted and speckled offspring by his little voodoo thing that he's doing with the branches. Now, what are the spiritual lessons from Jacob's sojourn in Laban's homestead? There's some doozies here that we need to look at. The first, foremost, I think, is that polygamous marriages may cater to a man's lust, but they create homesteads characterized by jealousy and strife and pain. The next big thing, I think, this is just my opinion, the next big thing to come down the pike, which will devastate marriage one step further than the sanction of homosexual marriages, will be and already is that of polygamous unions. Man's evil heart knows no end to what he will do. Polygamous unions. This is already part and portion of the teaching of the Mormon religion. Though a recent article that I read said that the Mormon church issued a manifesto forbidding such marriages. But you know what? Old school devotees, however, follow the practices of founder Joseph Smith. Who records, after receiving a revelation commanding him to practice plural marriages. Now you know that isn't true. You won't even find that command anywhere in Scripture in the Old Testament, let alone the New. I'll read it again. After receiving a revelation commanding him to practice plural marriage, Joseph Smith married multiple wives and introduced the practice to close associates. This principle was among the most challenging aspects of the Restoration for Joseph personally and for other church members. That's from, stated from Wikipedia. Brigham Young, the successor of Joseph Smith, and again, I'm giving you the history, married 55 women. This is the United States of America in the 1800s. He married 55 women, a number of whom were plural wives of Joseph Smith. The, the uh, internet uh, history re reports, of his 55 wives, 21 had never been married before, 16 were widows, 6 were divorced, 6 had living husbands at the time. And the marital status of 6 others is not known. At the time of Young's death, 19 of his wives had predeceased him. They died before him. 
He had divorced from 10. 23 survived him. And the status of four is unknown. In his will, Brigham Young shared his estate with the 16 surviving wives who had lived with him. The six surviving non-conjugal wives were not mentioned at all in his will. So the wives that refused to live with him, they got no, nothing. They, got, they didn't get a penny from his estate. But those wives that lived with him, he had them in the will. So polygamy in our own country. Virtually all of Africa practice, practices polygamy. And most Muslim countries as well. Though in Muslim countries, the plural marriages must consist of marrying another Muslim. So the Western culture is unique in this whole area of marriage. Well, what do we say of Jacob and some of the other patriarchs having plural wives? Jesus answers, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, singular, and the two, those two, will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted, there wasn't a command, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Matthew 19, verses 4 through 8. Now true, this text is dealing primarily with divorce to marry another, but notice the underpinnings to which Jesus refers that helps us understand the view of God with regard to plurality of wives. Number one, a man leaves home to marry a wife. Okay? That's in Genesis. Secondly, these two become one flesh. Not three, not four, not 55. The two become one. That's the point. Third, the union of the two is not dissolvable by man. And number four, divorce was permitted to satisfy hard hearts, but originally marriage was forever. And by the way, marrying another person while your present wife was still living was condemned as adultery, Matthew 19, verse 9, not simply as, well, I'm just adding another wife to the family. There was no polygamy in the New Testament church. Just Old Testament. Well, despite the spiritual repercussions for polygamy, do we not recognize the problems in Jacob's family because of marrying two wives and two maidservants as concubines, lesser wives? The Oak Ridge Boys wrote a song. It's a farce. But they wrote a song that says, Trying to love two women is like a ball and chain. Sometimes the pleasure ain't worth the strain. It's a long old grind and it tires your mind. Second verse, trying to hold two women is tearing me apart. One's got my money and the other's got my heart. It's a long old grind and it tires 
your mind. Now, they're not talking about polygamy necessarily. They're talking about being unfaithful. But the whole point is how difficult and how magnitude the problems. This division was in Jacob's family. In all good uh, sense, Jacob had not planned it that way. Uh, Laban had cheated him. He thought he was marrying Rachel. He ended up marrying Leah. Worked another years, another seven years for Rachel. So I, I just, I'm not a prophet, but I'm kind of predicting that what we're going to see in the future of our country is an explosion of polygamy because of the evil of men's hearts. A second lesson learned here is that envy in people, envy in people is rooted in the assumption that one has more than another, and that's not fair. Just think about this. Envy has to do with seeing that others have more than you have, and we say, that's not fair. The eye gate plays an essential role in this. Look at verse 1. When Rachel saw, now this is a seeing of perception. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Genesis 30, verse 1. What is it that Rachel saw? Well, she observed that Leah had birthed four sons to Jacob while she had none. Four to none. And she became jealous of Leah and critical of Jacob as though the disparity between her and Leah was somehow Jacob's fault. She was emoting, not thinking. The same husband who sired sons through Leah was the same husband who shared her bed, so it did not make sense to lay the blame for her barrenness at Jacob's feet. But if truth be told, it was too painful for Rachel to acknowledge that God's providence had not smiled on her as a mother, and that it was intentionally so because God saw that Leah was unloved by Jacob, chapter 29, verse 31, and so he compensated her with children. The disparity between the haves and the have-nots is often fueled by jealousy. Bernie Sanders, the socialist running on the Democratic ticket for the presidency, and Hillary to a lesser degree, both advocate a policy of equalization, equalization, of taking money from the haves and distributing it to the have-nots, resulting in a more level playing field economically. Sounds wonderful if you're a have-not and are doing little to better yourself through gainful employment. Not so good sounding <laughs> to the person who has worked hard to obtain what he or she has, taking full advantage of the free enterprise system open to all. It's the difference if I can put it this way, between the drones and the worker bees. The drones sit around watching TV all day, sipping mint juleps, while the worker bees are up at 5 in the morning and off to shop or an office to work 8 to 10 hours to earn their keep. That's what's going on in America. To our Christian work ethic, we must also add the providence of God. 
In Rachel's case, her lack of children had nothing to do with indolence on her part. She loved Jacob as surely as she as did uh, Leah, but God was in the mix, and he determined that Leah received the same love and the same devotion from Jacob that he showered on Rachel. An envious eye concentrates on the disparity that exists between others and ourselves. More children, maybe. Maybe that's the wish of some. But certainly intangibles like, how about healthier children? This is what I call the advantage of the more. The more. So-and-so has more money. More free time, more friends, more respect, more power, more opportunities, more occasions of joy. It's more, more, more. When I look at them, it's more, more, more. While every day for me is a struggle to survive and to get ahead. Some of these goals for more are within your reach. If you're motivated to work hard, and to take advantage of the opportunities which exist in our free society. Paul says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We, we hear that some among you, this is Paul now, we hear that some among you are idle. Hmm. They are not busy. They are busy bodies which what's happened when you have idle time. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what's right. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 13. These are changes that you can accomplish if you're struggling. Other achievements depend on the providence of God. And that's also in the scripture. And that's also something that we need to bend to. Again, Paul writing, this time to the church at Corinth, and says, he's, in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body. He's talking about the church. God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? And then he elaborates. As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are not presentable are treated with special modesty. While other presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there would be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern. Now see, not equal station in life, not equal jobs, but equal concern for each other. 
then he explains, if one part suffers, then every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 through 26. The lesson here is don't let the eye gate make you envious of others. You have certain things you can do to improve your own status in life if you're willing to work hard. And then you'd have to take into account the providence of God. What has he gifted you to do? What are your abilities? What are your opportunities? And so forth. And whatever he's done, he's done it that the body would come together and be strong together. Each part supplying its, the, the need for the other part. And so that together we grow up into a strong body of Christ. Here's the third lesson here. God means for you as people to be a blessing to the world. Jacob told Laban, his uncle, the little you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. Verse 30. This is undeniably true. And that is why when Jacob let his intentions be known that he was planning to head back to his own country and back to his own family. Jacob pleaded, if I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. The Lord has blessed me because of you. Verse 27. Isn't this the set goal that God has for all believers? And it does not depend on how we are treated by the world. Again, Paul writes, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope and patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 12, verse 95. In other words, be a blessing to the people of the world with whom you come in contact. Don't be cursing them, but bless them. Think of what our world would be like if believers did all of this that we just read. The Christian faith, unlike Islam, is a religion of love and respect. It is a religion of forgiveness for those who wrong us. It is a religion of humility, not pride. It is a religion of seeking peace even amidst times of persecution. It's a lifestyle that does all of these things. And we strive for these things in others because of what we have experienced in our lives. Again, Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, 
By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me and seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Philippians 4, 6 through 9. God's peace is experienced by the forgiven who have confessed their sins to Jesus and believed in his redeeming love. Again, Paul writes, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith and this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 5 the first two verses. So we are to be a blessing to the world. God did bless Laban because of Jacob though Jacob wasn't a believer at this time, it does seem to, that he had some kind of integrity to him. wasn't trying to cheat his uncle. His uncle was trying to cheat him. And God saw to it that he was blessed as a result. We trust that the Lord is your Savior. If not, it's because there's a sin barrier between you and God. And that barrier will always be there and you'll always be butting heads with God and his righteousness until you submit to the Lordship of Christ and seek his forgiveness because of his cross work. I pray that that'll be the same. And then when that happens, the peace of God, which Paul says passes all understanding, it's beyond us, will flood our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Why are you unrest? What's troubling your heart? What's the pain you're going through in your life? Is it because of circumstances you want to blame that? Or is it because you're out of sorts with God? Very much likely to be the latter. Our Lord, we pray for souls here today that your word might come and stir us and that we might see the importance of trusting in Christ. We pray that we might be a blessing to the world in which we live. Yeah, they don't like us. They think we're religious fanatics. They speak ill of us. They slander us. All of those things occur. But we can still be a blessing to them. And I pray that you will help us to do so by living out the graciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the peace that he gives us. May we not be surly and cruel in our speech, slanderous, cheats, thieves, all the things that the world might even be willing to label us. But Lord, may their slander be rebuked and may they be shamed for saying evil things that aren't true. And I pray that they are untrue. I pray that our lives are living in such a way that the world says, well, you know, I don't like his religion, but it certainly seems to be working for him. Lord, it'll work for everyone that comes to faith in Christ. And I pray that you will do that. Thank you for the 
the power of the gospel. Thank you for intervening in the lives of your people, even before they are your people. Thank you for watching over us like uh, you did for Jacob and how you steered his life to a final point where he came to know you as Lord and Savior. For everyone struggling here in the spiritual realm, may you grant your grace and your mercy. Firstly, for your own glory, because you are glorified whenever a new person comes into a right relationship with you. But then secondly, for our good, it's always good to be forgiven. It's always good to have our sins washed away. It's always good to be blessed by God and loved by God and brought into your family. And I pray that you will bring home these truths and these realities. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.